0: You know, God's a real comedian. Uh, This morning, I got up at the 9 o'clock service, and I looked down, and there was no sermon there. And I looked at Nathan, and he saw the look on my face, and he said, you want me to go find it? And I said, no, let's just go with it. And so we had a good laugh in the first service, which is perfect for this passage. Let me begin by telling you a story. By the way, I decided to leave the notes in the office Mark Curtis, when he took communion, said, don't get your notes. That was too good without notes. You don't want to mess it up. (laughs) So I heard this testimony this week that just moved me. It's a story of Galia. Galia is from Tajikistan. Uh, She grew up there, and she was a part of a family that gave her a hope for a better future. She was getting education, which is not available to all young girls in some of those Asia Minor places. But something happened in the course of their family life that education was no longer available to her, and she had to begin working in the fields for her family. She did it one year after another, and she started to lose hope for her future. She became desperate. She thought, nobody's going to want to marry me. This is going to be my life. And as a young teen, she became so desperate, she went to one of the flooding rivers that come out of the former Soviet Union. Uh, rushing waters, and she threw herself into those waters. These hands reached into the waters when she was completely out of control, took her by her shoulders, and set her on the riverbank. She looked around. It was so physical, the presence. She looked around to find out what had happened, and there was no one there, so she did what any sensible teenager would do who had lost hope. She threw herself back in the river. Further downriver, those same hands took a hold of her, picked her up, and put her on the riverbed. Now this is the part where it gets really strange. This shows you how desperate she was. She looked around and found no one, and she threw herself in the river a third time. And the third time, those hands reached down, took hold of her, and put her on the edge of the river. She realized she wasn't going to win this battle, so she decided to go home. Uh, I would like to ask her, did she tell her family? But there were some events that were going on. Uh, One of the things was that there was a group that was uh, had emissions into Tajikistan in her language where she kept hearing this song, Jesus loves you and he died for you. Didn't know what it meant, but as she was continuing on, one day her mother said, do you remember your friend you grew up with, the family that went away to Russia to work They're coming back, and you're going to get to see her again. She was excited because this was a friend that she had lost long ago. When she met her friend for the first time in a number of years, her friend looked at her and said, I have to go with my parents. I can't stay. We'll catch up. But she put her hands on her shoulders and said, just want you to know that Jesus loves you, and he died for you. Now, every time she heard that song, she was really curious of what was going on. Her friend came back to her in a short time, explained the gospel to her, and Galia came to Christ. Here's an interesting part of the story. When her friend was in Russia and was leaving, she explained that she was a part of a house church there, and her family had all come to understand who God was and how to get to Him through Jesus Christ. When they found out they were going back to Tajikistan... They ask, what is the one thing we can pray for you? And her friend said this, will you pray for God to save my friend Gallia? It was the same time that Gallia was throwing herself into the river. So what happens in your head and your heart when you hear that story? If you're a naturalist, your response is impossible. Impossible. You're going to have to bring her here. She's going to have to have video proof. (laughs) I need to touch the wet clothes to really believe. If you're a spiritualist, at your best moment, you're going to break out in doxology. But even if you're a spiritualist, on some of your most natural moments, you're going to say, really? Really? We're doing this series, Skeptics in the Bible. We looked last week at the question of suffering. We've got to take that a little bit further. We'll come back to it another time. It's too deep of an issue. But today, the question is, what do you do when God brings a promise that's too hard to believe? Does God still do miracles today? And what about the impossible things before me? What's great about our text is that when Sarah hears the promise, she laughs. And Anne already gave us a clue in the children's sermon. She had no idea where I was going this morning. The story is not so much about Sarah. The story tells us a lot more about our God. So let's press into it a little bit to bring our lives into the situation. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 set the context of the story. Abraham, the father of faith, and uh, Sarah, the mother of faith, are going along doing the things that God has told them to do. They're being hospitable people. The commentator lets the cat out of the bag early and says, the Lord appeared to them, but Abraham and Sarah aren't going to figure this out for a while. Uh, Some of you knew right away when I said, these hands came and grabbed Galia and put her on the riverbed. You're going, ah, there's God breaking His rules of gravity and all this stuff all the time like He likes to do. Okay? So we know that it's coming, but Abraham and Sarah, they're just being good, faithful people. In that land, when visitors come, there's not a Motel 8 down the road. You have to get help with the people that are there, and they're being hospitable, and they do it with bounty. Bounty. These are good people, kind of like us, what we would do when we find somebody in need. And then the conversation begins in verse 9. The three visitors said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now, this is not the first time they've been told this promise. Four other times the Lord has told them that they're going to have a son. They've been waiting a long time for this promise to come into fulfillment. In fact, Abraham was told that his descendants would be like the stars if he could count them or the bits of sand on the shore, and that his son was going to be a great nation. But it had been so long that they were not convinced they heard right from God. Uh, The biblical writers wants us to, in case we forgot the story, Abraham's approaching 100, Sarah's approaching 90. The way of woman had ceased to be with her. What a nice way to say it. She's barren. And now she's moved to menopausal barrenness. There's evidence in the language of how Sarah responds that Abraham is impotent as well. These are all stacked up, and they had given up long ago. Thirteen years previously, Sarah said, Take my handmaiden, Hagar, and let us fulfill God's promise for him. We've seen how well that's worked in history, right? This doesn't feel like a promise right now. This almost feels like a taunt. Come on, get into what's going on in their emotions. This is ridiculous now. The promise was fun 40 years ago. Promise is feeling very desperate. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. What a beautiful verse. Beautiful verse. God's Word is so rich. It's so rich that the ancient commentators didn't know what to do with it. There's so much rabbinical trail around this passage because they don't like the idea that potentially their father of faith and the mother of faith laughed at God. See, we're picking on Sarah today, but you only got to go back one chapter. In chapter 17, when the Lord reminded Abraham of this, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. The commentators are so perplexed by this, they want to create two kinds of laughing. They're saying Abraham's laughter was the kind where you go, can you believe that God's going to do this for me? And Sarah's laughter is the kind where she's saying, I'm going to have sexual pleasure again. This is great. And the Bible's full of sex. You guys better get over it really quick. It's a gift that God has given to us. We're the ones wrecking it. I didn't plan to say that, but that should get a really loud amen. It's one of the best gifts He's given us. That should get a really loud amen. And we're wrecking it. Even the biblical commentators from the Hebrew time could not think of sex as something simply for procreation. They saw it as something for pleasure. And they've tried to dance around our spiritual father and mother in these questions because they don't want to make it think that they doubted. But when you read the text in the natural, God leaves no question whatsoever that she's doubting. She's saying, this is impossible. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There is the punchline. That should make us giggle ridiculously. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The rhetorical answer obviously is no. But God's providence and His sovereignty and His working in His life is only valuable when it becomes personal to us. A theoretical God who can enter our world is nothing if we're not going to believe Him for the things He wants to bring into our world. God's calling us through the doubt of the patriarchs to another kind of faith. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And the Lord said, oh, no but you did laugh. (laughs) Isn't God funny? See, the story moves to chapter 21. Matt, throw it up there. Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. See, God was shifting it from a laughter of doubt to a laughter of hilarity, of the bounty of God. Do you know what Isaac's name means? He laughs. He laughs. This is my son. <laughs> Think about it. Even if you do the Hebrew, it's almost like the beginning of an explosion of laughter. This is my son. <laughs> that wasn't the laughter of Abraham and Sarah. In these chapters. So, what's my so what this morning? The first one is this nothing, absolutely nothing, even your doubt and your laughing in God's face can break his covenant promises for you. Stand on it. Nothing. What did God do in the face of their doubt? He pulled His promise back. No, that's not what God does. He executed His promise because He was making a nation out of that boy. That's a covenant promise that He's going to bring into fulfillment. It's the kind of thing that He says over us, be confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You cannot stop God's covenant promises. In fact, he loves to tie his names to doubters who become believers in the process of the story. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know how ridiculous that is? He's the God of Big Boss, Mr. Laughter, and the Trickster. That's what all their names mean. Because God loves to do the impossible. Romans 4, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Really? I know the Bible does not contradict itself, so I have to dig in deeply to what's happening here. It means my God is big enough to swallow up my doubts as one side of the coin as he moves me to the other side of faith. I can't tell you how in one season of my life I stood on this scripture, I yelled it out to God over and over so that I would get to the next stage. Because everything about my situation said you're not going to get to the other stage, but God was saying I have a covenant promise for people that I want to release my life in. And yes is always yes in Jesus when you're following his promises. Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith. Several women included in that chapter. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. That almost sounds like it had a lot to do with her faith, doesn't it? How much faith do you need to experience the covenant promises of God? Just laugh in his face and watch what he does. So we need to be honest as skeptics to the things that come our way. So you're saying, well, pastor, does faith not matter? Oh, it absolutely does matter. You see, there's a difference between his covenant promises and his circumstantial promises. His covenant promises, grabbing Galia and bringing her out and putting her on a river, was something that she could not resist because his purpose for her was salvation. But the circumstantial pro- uh, promises in our life will only come about as we take hold of them in Christ Jesus. We see this perfectly in the story of Jesus. It says that in his hometown of Nazareth, he could only do a few miracles. He couldn't do many, and the reason is given because of their unbelief. Was the reason they were not experiencing miracles because of the sovereignty of God and his choice for those people? No. It was because of their resistance. His desire for them was that they would experience the fruitfulness and the flourishing and everything that he designed. but because of their unbelief, they did not receive. At other times in the Gospels, Jesus says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel when he speaks to Gentiles who cry out for God's presence to come in their life. Faith does matter. He says, when you pray, believe. You see, the covenant promises are worked out in your life, but the circumstantial promises you take hold of. So be honest with your disbelief. Be honest with your skepticism. But allow God to take your skepticism and move you from skepticism to faith so that you get all the flourishing of what He wants in your life. What's impossible in your life? What's impossible? Is anything impossible for God? Is anything impossible for God? Yeah, it's impossible for him to get you to say no. (laughs) Agree with him. Here's the great thing about the bounty of God. Sometimes even He breaks through our stubbornness in His circumstantial promises. I heard a great story. One of my former students, he's been a pastor for 25 years. He pastors somewhere in Connecticut or Massachusetts. Um, I'm not quite sure, up that way somewhere. Um, And for 25 years, he's had chronic back problems not the kind of back problems where your back bothers you a bit. I'm talking about the kind that you're laid out for days. Those of you who have struggled with back problems or some kind of condition that takes over, you know what that's like. I mentioned it last week. Suffering immediately is one thing, but suffering prolonged wears you down. 25 years. He says there's not a day where he hasn't been in pain. tried to manage the medications because he doesn't like the aspect of being spacey when he's on them, but he could barely deal with the pain at times. Dozens of people have prayed for him. He believes in miracles. He's prayed for people and they've been healed. The whole thing on miracles is not the fact that God does them. It's the question when he doesn't do them, right? But he finally came to the point that it wasn't God's will for him to be healed, So there's no faith at this point for himself. He's continuing to do. He's being a faithful person. He's being hospitable with the gospel where God has placed him up somewhere in Connecticut or Massachusetts. One day a missionary was passing through who had experienced a lot of healing in his ministry and the missionary said, Ed, I want to pray for you. And as Ed tells the testimony, he said, I, I really didn't want his prayer but I didn't want to disappoint the missionary so I let him pray for me so that he would be happy. So he prayed for me, and I didn't sense anything, but I was at a point in my treatments where the doctors had finally decided the only thing they could do was fuse my back. It was a very risky surgery, but to do that, they were going to have to do a spinal tap, and they had to do a spinal tap when I was in pain. So I had to be off the medication. So I took myself off the medication for a week, and there was no pain. They called me and said, are you coming in for the spinal tap? And he said, no. Uh, he says, yeah, I'll come in. And they said, um, are you off the meds yet? And are you experiencing pain? No. Oh, well, then you need to stay off the meds for a while. This went on for two, three, four weeks. His wife's saying to him, I think you're healed. He's going, nah. <laughs> he was at a ministry for youth, helping out the youth pastor, And there was something that was really heavy and not thinking because he's had 25 years of programming his life not to do anything to rescue. He reached down and picked this thing up and put it on the truck, and then he stopped. And he realized God had healed him. It was not his faith. It was the faith of someone else that was like the mis- that was like the four friends who carried the man's pallet and broke into the house so that he would experience healing and more importantly forgiveness of sins <sighs> be true to your doubts don't get stuck in your doubts Whatever is impossible in your life, keep bringing it to God. One day, he's going to make you laugh. It's going to be hilarious laughing. Amen.